This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. It is a great privilege to have with us today Dr. Petter Broden. Dr. Broden is consultant in pediatric immunology at the Karolinska University Hospital and professor in pediatric immunology at Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. Petter, welcome. Thank you. Dr. Petter Broden is arguably one of the most prolific investigators in the immunology of pediatric COVID and MISC in the world today. In the past year alone, he has published twice in Science. His work has also been published in Cell and just last week in Nature Medicine. He's widely quoted in the scientific community, and it's a great privilege to have him with us today. Dr. Broden, to begin with perhaps one of the most obvious questions, what do we know today in uh, January of 2021 about the determinants of COVID-19 disease? So this is a really fascinating topic, Jeff, and I'm happy to speak about that. Ever since this pandemic began, I think it's been evident that the disease is very variable across individuals. Seemingly healthy individuals infected by this one virus can either present with an asymptomatic infection or a life-threatening disease. It's clear that the main determinant is obviously age, where young individuals have mostly a mild infection, while elderly people more commonly suffer from severe disease. But there are also other features that are really intriguing, such as men being more susceptible to severe infection than women, as well as some notable differences to other respiratory infections, such as flu or RSV, where very small children are often highly susceptible, not so in the case of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 infection. So that is the general impression. When it comes to the immunology around this, I think we've learned very much in very short time. We now know that the early immune response mediated by interferons, so the proteins and the, the signaling pathways used by cells infected to prevent viruses from replicating, is a critical determinant of disease severity. And so I think that is the most notable evidence to date. We know that if the virus inhibits the interferon response, which it is very capable of doing, then the likelihood of severe disease is higher. And it seems that that interference by the virus uh, is more likely to occur in men than in women, in the elderly versus the young, and so on. So the early interferon response seems to be critical. Well, Dr. Broden, could I ask you to go a little deeper into the science here? Uh, I've been following your work, and that's what your work has helped illuminate. But why is interferon compromised in the older population, um, and why in males? What's the mechanism? So that's a very interesting point, and, and we know some of these, uh, some aspects around this. For example, it was becoming clear when studying some rare individuals who have autoantibodies to various cytokines. For example, children or adults with a rare condition called APS1 or autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type 1. These patients have autoantibodies to various cytokines. And it was noted that several of these rare individuals had very severe COVID, even though they were young children. And this led to the hypothesis that maybe autoantibodies that neutralize the protein interferon 
might make one susceptible to severe disease. And that was actually found. For some, and that was reported in science by a large international consortium that I am a part of called COVID Human Genetic Effort. And also individuals who have rare inborn errors of the interferon system or signaling pathways, they also seem to be highly susceptible to severe disease and develop severe disease in often. So that's how we know this. And then we also know from the viral side of things, we know that the virus has multiple mechanisms to inhibit the interferon signaling and the interferon response by the cell. And obviously that is in the, in the interest of the virus because it allows the virus to replicate more efficiently. But if the, so it becomes a tug of war between the cells and the virus. And, and in this case, the virus is often able to inhibit the interferon response. And my interpretation of what happens then is that the immune system is then trying to keep up with the replicating virus by mobilizing other aspects of the immune system, such as pro-inflammatory cytokine production, chemokines, and other things. And as the body is trying to keep up with the rapidly replicating virus, this leads to the immune system sort of losing its control and, and the cytokine storm developing. Interesting. So the obvious question, Petter, is are there currently, as you see it, any potential therapies that are on the shelf, as it were, that could be repurposed to help restore the interferon response? Or is the development of such an intervention, is that still a ways off? No, I think that is definitely within reach. And there are trials ongoing where, for example, beta interferon is an already approved drug used in various conditions such as MS and other diseases. And, and I know that there are trials ongoing where people are trying to uh, give beta interferon early in the disease course. I think the real challenge here is to come in with the interferon early enough because oftentimes patients would present to the hospital at a later phase of the disease when the interferon is less important and the hyperinflammatory disease has already developed. And so the trick will be to give the interferon early enough. One last question on this before we move on to the multi-system inflammatory response, but why is it that children around the world, different genetic backgrounds, under the age of 10, why is it that they are so able to successfully fight off COVID? Do they have a a preserved interferon response? And if so, why is that? I think here the science is not entirely clear, but we know that kids develop a very robust interferon response. And I think that definitely is one part of this. But there might be other aspects as well, such as the fact that the immune system of children, we have to bear in mind, they are designed to always face new challenges. While the immune system of an adult is more reliant on memory responses, and so in this way, the immune system, if you think about the T cells and the B cells, they're always naive cells ready to see a new challenge and, and defend against it. And I think that is a notable difference between the young children and the adults as well. Dr. Broden, of course, we're all wondering, what do we know about immunity after natural infection? And, um, and of course, the studies are now ongoing as to the immunologic response after vaccination, but what do we know about immunity after natural infection? Yeah, so there's been much discussion around this topic and some people have been worried about declining titers of antibodies and so on. But what we now know after a year or so of people getting infected with this virus is that 
the vast majority of individuals, including young children who have an asymptomatic infection, they do develop antibodies and they are likely to be immune. The degree or the titers of antibodies do vary, however, on an inter-individual level. So that probably has some bearing on the duration of the, of the immunity, but clearly the majority of individuals do develop some degree of immunity, and it probably lasts for one year, maybe two years. Dr. Broden, there, you know, we could keep talking, I think, for hours. I could keep asking you questions, but there's two major concepts that remain that I'd like to discuss with you. One is the multisystem inflammatory syndrome, and one, of course, is uh, the vaccines. Could we turn now to the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children? What do we now know? about the immune response in multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, where you've done so much of the work to date? This syndrome is clearly a rare condition. We don't know exactly how many children that are affected, but proportionally, my guess is that it's in the order of 1 to 20,000 to maybe 1 to 100,000 of all children infected by the virus. So it's a rare condition by all means. Uh, however, it's a, it's a very severe condition in a few cases. And in my experience, about a third of all patients require intensive care, and mainly due to low blood pressures and difficulty in maintaining uh, adequate circulation. But what, when it comes to the immunology, there are clear resemblance to Kawasaki disease in the sense that it is, it is a disease that occurs after a viral infection. But in many cases, the virus seems to be long gone. So somehow the immune system is triggering itself, if you will. It resembles many auto-inflammatory conditions in that respect. We know that the, without the virus, you don't get the response, but the virus seems to be long gone. So uh, what, what mediates this and why does some kids develop it, but most not? The last question we still don't have an answer to I personally believe that something in the initial immune response to the virus determines the MIS-C one or two months down the line. And we are trying to, to study that. The actual hyperinflammatory response seems to be quite sort of diffuse across the tissues uh, involving the heart, blood vessels, liver, kidney, brain, so it's, it's, it's a definitely a multi-system inflammatory syndrome in that sense. We do believe that the, this is mediated by autoantibodies, potentially. And my group, together with other groups, have shown autoantibodies that target antigens in uh, the blood vessels, in the skin and tissues, heart, for example. So probably autoantibodies play a role. And we also see that by treating these patients with IVIG, immunoglobulins, we can uh, sort of override some of the autoantibody-mediated effects. We also obviously give steroids and maybe some other immunomodulatory drugs, such as IL-1 inhibitors or IL-6 or TNF inhibitors, depending on where you are. And fortunately, the kids do uh, respond very well, and the, and the condition is, is readily treatable, but very serious. And the clinical course that you describe is, uh, I think, precisely what all of us have experienced around the world, that fortunately, two-thirds of these children can be managed outside the ICU, but that uh, roughly one-third do get quite ill, but then they do seemingly respond quite quickly to the therapies that you described. But of course, 
it raises the question of what is your concern that vaccines in children, vaccinating children against COVID could produce this antibody enhancement leading to MISC-like response in, in a proportion of the children who get vaccinated? Are you concerned about that? Not particularly. And let me tell you why. As I said in the beginning, my interpretation of the data that we have to date is that MISC is likely triggered by the initial immune response to the virus. And probably something in that immune response leads to the production of autoantibodies, leads to the dysregulation of the immune response, if you will, or immune system. And I think the virus ability to interfere with the immune response is critical in this respect. In, in contrast, vaccines will not be able to interfere with the immune response in the same way. They would passively trigger an immune response. And so I am less worried about MISC developing after vaccination. And also, even though not too many children have received the vaccine yet, still, as far as I'm aware, there are no signals indicating MISC development or MISA, I guess, in adults developing in after vaccination. Dr. Broden, one of the most commonly asked questions, I think, among pediatricians around the world is, is MISC a variant of Kawasaki or is it a distinct entity? What does the science tell us at this moment on that question? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. And first of all, we should make it clear that pathogenesis of Kawasaki disease is not fully uh, known, but there is clear overlap in symptomatology between Kawasaki disease and MIS-C. When we study the immune response uh, during the hyperinflammatory phase in Kawasaki disease children and MISC children, we do see some similarities. They're all very hyperinflammatory. They involve similar types of cells, but so do many other immune responses. On the other hand, there is also notable differences. Kawasaki disease, in our experience, has a lot of signatures of inflammation of arteries, so arteritis and endothelial damage and so on, which is not as clearly seen in the cases of MIS-C that we have looked at. And so my guess, whether there's a similar pathway to developing these conditions, that is fully possible. But I do think there are also notable differences. I should also add that the populations of children affected are somewhat different with MISC more commonly affecting older children than Kawasaki. Dr. Broden, everyone's anxious, I'm sure, to hear your views of vaccines and their role in helping to mitigate, if not defeat this pandemic. And I guess the first question is this, you know, there's some serious discussion around the world on whether children under 10, for example, should actually be vaccinated since they have so little uh, disease burden. And as you know, as you well know, only just recently now, this is January of 2021, are uh, trials being started with phase three trials of children 12 years and older. But what should we do about children under the age of 10 who, as you've just described, have minimal impact from this disease? So I think this is a very interesting discussion to be had, and we certainly need a lot more data to really make informed decisions on these issues. We need to study children and study the vaccines in children for sure. And I think there are a couple of important concepts here. The vaccine trials have been done studying protection from disease. And obviously the risk of severe disease in children is much lower than the risks in adults and the elderly specifically. 
So it might not be possible to justify the vaccination of all children just to reduce the burden of disease in children itself. On the other hand, we know that it's in all of our interest to reduce the spread of this virus and to, to reduce the number of viral copies circulating in the population. Because as, as the more virus there is, the, the greater the likelihood of getting new variants that might escape uh, the vaccine immunity and so on. So we probably should try to do everything we can to reduce the number of people infected, including children. For that to be reality, we need to know whether the vaccines actually protect from infections and not only disease. And so what I would like to see would be studies in children, including younger children, where we not only look for protection from disease, but also protection from infection. So that's the first point I wanted to make. The other issue relates to MISC that you already brought up and whether there's a risk, number one, risk of developing MISC from the vaccines. That would be terrible and that should probably, you know, disqualify the use of these vaccines in children probably. The other, th the other thing is could vaccines protect from MISC? And, and if that's the case, then that could, you know, speak uh, in favor of using uh, vaccines in children more broadly. So. We need more data, we need more, more studies, including young children, and I think it's coming soon. Dr. Broden, as you well know, while fortunately the impact of severe disease in children is very low compared to adults, it's not zero. And in particular, we have seen, and I know you've seen it at the Karolinsk Institute, children who have comorbidities can become quite ill from uh, COVID-19. Should a vaccine strategy be developed to protect uh, children with chronic disease and, comor and multiple comorbidities uh, in kind of the same risk profile as they are in adults? Yes, I think so. And I think uh, we, need, we as clinicians need to determine this on a sort of disease by disease <laughs> sort of group. There are definitely specific conditions that we see uh, sometimes. For example, I brought up earlier the APS1 patients who have a type of immunodeficiency with autoantibodies to multiple cytokines and who have very, very severe acute COVID-19. There are other groups of patients with immunodeficiencies or patients, children with severe lung or heart uh, conditions. I also think children with Down syndrome should be considered because there seems to be a signal of increased susceptibility. And so I do believe that there are groups of children that should be vaccinated to be protected from severe COVID-19. And just for sake of completeness, is there any reason to believe in your mind that the various platforms could potentially have a different impact in children? So as you well know, two of the leading platforms rely on an mRNA-based approach. Others rely on an adenovirus-based approach. Do you have any concerns that one platform approach versus another might have a peculiar response in children? Not so much a peculiar response, but we do know that vaccinating children is usually easier in a sense than vaccinating the elderly in terms of getting a robust immune response. It goes back to the topic I brought up earlier of how children are usually very efficient at having a, a, a new immune response or an immune response to a new a antigen. And I think that's one reason why they respond very efficiently to vaccines. And so in some sense, Vaccinating children is an easier thing than vaccinating the elderly. We do know that some vaccines, such as the mRNA vaccines, are very reactogenic. 
we see people getting sometimes very severe local reactions. Whether that has any increased risks in children remains to be determined once these studies come in. But I do think maybe the vaccines that might be less efficient in the elderly might very well work well in children. And so again, we comes back to this issue, we need to do studies in children, but from the platform as such, I don't believe that there's any one platform that will not work in children or that would be harmful to children. Well, it's been a privilege talking with you today, Dr. Petter Broden, consultant in pediatric immunology at the Karolinska University Hospital and professor of pediatric immunology at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. Dr. Broden, the last comment to you. Your work has been featured in Nature Medicine and Cell and Science all in the last year. What can we as your colleagues around the world do to help promote your science? Thank you for having me on this great podcast. And, you know, science has been collaborative in COVID. And I think collaboration has been terrific in developing vaccines, finding new treatments for severe disease, and also understanding the determinants of severe COVID. And I think as pediatricians and as immunologists, we are always looking for individual patients that might have an unusual presentation to their SARS-CoV-2 infection, whether it's MISC or long-term symptoms or a failure to, to clear the virus and developing severe COVID-19. So if anyone wants to collaborate with me and my team members studying the immune response in these patients, feel free to reach out via email and I'll be happy to collaborate. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Petter Broden. And on behalf of colleagues around the world, we salute you for your work and uh, keep going. Thank you so much, Jeff. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. To hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.